0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. The scripture for today is Psalm
1: 119, verses 33 through 40. And if you are reading from the Black Pew Bibles, it should be on page 513. Please stand for the reading of God's word when you're ready. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Amen. You may be seated.
0: Well, good morning. Thank you for worshiping with us this more the weekend. We are um, in a, the front end of a new sermon series. Uh, We're going to be taking uh, four weeks. This is week number two of just looking at some key sections of Psalm 119. And we've titled this sermon series, Sufficiency in Suffering. What the psalmist does in Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the book of the Bible. um, The psalmist really wrestles with this idea of God's word, how God's word is sufficient for life, how it's sufficient for godliness. He's constantly going back to God's word. But then, as we're going to see in the next two weeks to come, that as the psalmist finds himself in a place of suffering, as affliction comes his way, when situations of life just seem to land in his lap, um, situations that he necessarily wasn't even expecting, what he's going to do is he's going to actually run to the sufficiency of God's word in those moments um, as the anchor for his soul. And so we're going to take these couple of weeks, to look at the sufficiency of God's word and how it's sufficient even in our suffering. So when we turn our attention to our section of scripture this morning, verses 33 through 40, what we're really going to see is this idea of how God's word is sufficient to give us life, even specifically when we don't desire God, don't desire his word, even when we're struggling to even want to find life in his ways. And so while we're going to Hit pause and we're going to pray before we continue on this morning, asking that the Holy Spirit would come and empower the preaching of His Word. And then we'll turn our attention to understanding what God has given to us for this morning. So, why don't you join me in prayer? God, Your Word is life, Your Word is power, Your Word is strength, Your Word is good. Your word is sufficient. Your word is sustenance for our souls when we're suffering. It's sustenance for our souls when life is just seemingly good. And all these things are true about your word mainly because your word points us to you. When we go to the Word, we get You. When we go to the Word, we get to understand You. When we go to the Word, we find the satisfaction for our souls because we get to find You. And so this morning, Father, I pray that through the power of Your Spirit that You would charge and empower my Word so that as we look to the Word, we wouldn't walk away this morning merely having grown in head knowledge of You, but we would walk away this morning with hearts aflame, with love for you, because we have spent time dwelling on you, thinking about you, desiring to know you, growing in you. God, do this for your namesake. Do this for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Greek mythology, there are creatures that are known as sirens that have the power to lure sailors away to their doom with the sound of their singing. So armed with a desire to accomplish their mission, the sailors would run the risk of shipwreck. ...on the rocky coast of the island that these sirens would live on... ...if they became enchanted by these creatures... ...if they sailed their ship too close... ...and heard the sound of their voice... ...and heard the sound of their singing... ...they would be going one way with one desire in their heart... ...with a mission to go and accomplish something... ...but if they got too close in Greek mythology to these sirens... ...they would be so overpowering... ...they would have such power to lure the hearts and the desires of the sailors... ...that they would actually become to believe that what I once was doing is no longer worthy. What I need to do is now go after these sirens to the place where they are, thinking that they're going to find life with the lures that these sirens were giving out in their songs and in their singing, not realizing that the place that they thought would be life for them was actually going to be a place of death for them. So when the sailors didn't realize was that the allurements of something better that was being offered by these sirens, it just wasn't going to go well for them. It wasn't going to actually lead to life. The better thing they thought they would find over here was actually going to lead to their doom. And for those of us who follow Christ, to hear this story about the sirens and their their power and their ability to lure us away, to change the desires of our heart, to make us think that there's there's better things over here, better things apart from where we desire to be, to hear this story of just this power and the tug and the pull that sometimes desires can have at the level of our heart, to hear this story is to hear something which has an all-too-familiar ring to it. See, at one time or another, we have all felt the tug and the pull of battling desires in our heart. We know what it's like to feel the allurement of something better, to feel the siren seduction of sin. To feel our hearts drift from God and his word to a place that seems like it would offer us life. Only to realize that once we get there we find the complete exact opposite of life. What we find is death. See, we know that walking in the way of God's Word is the path that leads to joy in God. That's what we looked at last week when the psalmist is talking about the blessed people of God or those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord, walk in the way of His Word. We know this to be true. We know that walking in God's way, walking the path of His Word is where we find genuine joy in God, But the reality is, there are times when we simply don't desire what we know to be true. We don't desire God. We don't desire His Word. And quite honestly, there are times when we just simply don't desire to find life in His ways. And all this led, led me to ask this question as I was thinking about this and just sort of beating on the text this past week and trying to meditate on this word and wrap my heart around the, the idea of what the psalmist was getting at in verses 33 through through 40, this this understanding of the tug and the pull and the battles of our, our heart's desires, recognizing there's there's times in my life when where I, I just don't quite desire God the way I ought to desire God. I don't desire his word the way I ought to desire his word. And there's just times it's like, man, I know the path that leads to life is found in God's ways, but like I'm just simply enjoying life on my own path over here apart from life in God's ways. It just led me to ask this question. If this is true, if this is the reality that we find ourselves in and seasons of our lives and in our Christian walk, how then do we fight to align our desires? How do we do this? Because when we are in that tug and that pull of the desires of our hearts being, being tugged by sort of the siren call, the seduction of sin, but knowing that this is the path that leads to death, but over here is the path that leads to life. It's in God's ways and it's in His Word. When we're sitting here feeling the tug and the pull of the desires of our heart, how then do we fight to align our desires with God's ways, especially when we don't feel like it? like when we just sit here and it's like we're sort of having this conversation in our head going like man I know the path that leads to life but like I'll just be honest with myself self like we just don't really desire to go this way the way of death seems to be just more delightful more pleasurable there seems to be more joy in this path so again how then do we fight to align our desires with God's ways, especially when we don't feel like it. When the desires of our hearts want to have nothing to do with God or His Word, what are we to do? This, I believe, is the central question that the psalmist is wrestling with in verses 33 through 40 in Psalm chapter 119. And as the psalmist wrestles with this reality in his own life, what he's going to do is he's going to show us that when you and I struggle to desire God, when you and I struggle to desire God in his ways, God has the power to give life by actually changing our desires to what they ought to be. See, two times in these verses, the psalmist is going to plead for God, plead with him saying, please give me life. He's going to say, give me life in your ways, in your righteousness, give me life. And in doing this, the psalmist is ultimately praying to God saying, listen, give me life according to your word. He says this back in verse 25, give me life in your word, I want life in your ways, in your righteousness, give me life. He knows the pathway of life and he's saying, God, my heart's prone to be over here. But God, I need you to even make me want to desire to be over here. Because right now that desire is just not in my heart. And what I love about these verses is that as the psalmist begins to plead in prayer, he becomes a model for us. He models for us a gutsy approach to God when the desires of our hearts are far from God. Seven times in a row, the first seven verses of our section this morning, they come off as commands. He's going to boldly yet humbly tell God, these are the things I need you to do. I need you to teach me. I need you to give me understanding. I need you to lead me. I need you to incline my heart. I need you to turn my eyes. I need you to confirm your promises. I need you to turn your way. In a way, he's like saying, God, he's not commanding God in the sense of he's superior and God's inferior. He's coming to God with the heart of desperation saying, God, like I'm, I know I'm over here. And like I know like I have no power to change the desires of my heart to put me on the path that leads to life. So God, I'm desperately asking you to do what only you can do. Change my heart to even want to desire life in your ways. I am dependent on you, he's going to say. I need these things from you. I'm incapable to do these things for myself. I'm desperate for you to give me life in your ways. And so as we turn to verse 33... The psalmist is first going to show us this truth that God gives life by guiding us in the way of His Word. God gives life by guiding us in the way of His Word. Starting in verse 33, the psalmist begins with a prayer for divine guidance. He's asking, saying, God, I need you to guide me in this way, because if I'm left to my own devices, this isn't going to go well. Listen to what he says. He says, teach me, O Lord. That's the language of guidance. God, I'm asking you to guide me. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, he says. And I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, he says, that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. See, knowing that life is found in God's ways, the psalmist begins by asking God for help and understanding his word. He says he understands that God is the master teacher, and he understands that he's the student. So he's not going to dare to presume that he knows better than God. He's coming with a heart marked by humility, saying, God, you're the teacher, I'm the student, I need you to guide me in your ways. He knows that left to his own devices, the psalmist will remain untaught. And what he needs is guidance from God. So he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. I need you to give me understanding. But notice something. Notice what he does. The psalmist isn't asking God for his guidance so that he can be puffed up with knowledge, rather, he is seeking God's guidance for the sake of obedience. He's not saying, God, give me a bunch of theology so I can be a big fat head and walk around proving everybody how smart I am in the Bible. He's not asking for that. He's actually saying, God, I'm desperate for you to teach me because I long to walk in obedience. I don't want guidance for self-knowledge. I want guidance for obedience. Again, he says, teach me the way of your statutes and I will what? Keep your way to the end. Give me understanding. Why? So that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The movement is from the head to the heart. He wants knowledge here so that that knowledge will affect here. Give me knowledge, give me understanding, help me to know your ways. I know life is in your words, so we need to start there. Give me life according to your word, so it will come in here, but not so that it will stop here, but so that it will travel south and begin to affect even the desires of my heart, he says. The psalmist wants Bible in his head so that it will affect his heart. If you want to jump into the New Testament and put it in New Testament language, the psalmist understands the difference between a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. James says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intensely at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Language very similar to what we looked to last week. See, the purpose of God's statutes is to lead us into the way of his statutes, which is a transformed life shaped by the word of God. It's not enough just to have a mind that wants to know God's testimonies in your head. We often make the mistake that life in God's ways is simply accomplished by cramming our heads full of knowledge. So what do we do? We drift from community group to community group, from sermon to sermon, from book study to book study, filling our heads, but never actually pausing to ponder the implications of what heart obedience actually looks like to the things that we're pumping our heads full of. So the psalmist is seeking to avoid this mistake. Which is why he tells God, give me understanding because I really want to desire to walk in obedience to you. In essence, he's saying, I want to understand the Bible so that I really will keep it with my whole heart. So again, the psalmist understands that God gives life by guiding us in the way of his word. So we can obey with the whole heart. But this truth is the point of tension. This very thing which God uses, his word, is oftentimes the very thing we don't desire. It's like sitting here going, I've got I've got the key that unlocks life to God. I've got the key that shows me God Himself. I've got the key that shows me how to find life in His ways. But there's times, we have to admit this, I don't think I'm preaching to myself, there's times when I look at this and go, this is the key, this is how I get God, this is where I understand God, this is how I grow in God, this is how I walk in God, this is how I mature in God, but there's just times when I simply look at that and go, I don't desire it. I don't want it. I don't want the thing that is going to get me on the path and keep me on the path of walking to God. And so again, we have to ask, what do we do in this moment? When we feel this tension, the tension of the very thing which God uses, namely His Word, to guide us in His way, when we find ourselves going, this is the absolutely one thing that I have no desire for right now. I believe this question is on the heart and the mind of the psalmist, and that's why the psalmist transitions to show us that God also gives life by turning our hearts to His Word. God also gives us life by turning our hearts to His Word. So not only does He give life by guiding us in the way of His Word, but God gives life by turning our hearts to His Word. Notice the language He starts using in verse 35. Lead me, He says. Some of your translations might say, make me walk. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Make me walk the path of your commandments, for I delight in it, He says. He says. Incline my heart to your testimonies. He's saying, God, I don't want it. I need you to make me want it. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, he says. See, the the siren seduction of selfish gain is powerful. And one of the ways desire for selfish gain can work itself out is actually in the way we approach the word of God. So instead of approaching God's word so we can get more of God, we approach God's word with self-serving purposes. We want to look wise in our own eyes or we want to look wise in the eyes of another or we approach it just so that we can have the smart answer community group or we approach it so that we can just have some sort of little one-off feel good because we just sort of plucked a verse out of context and we're just sort of wielding it however we want to. There's a lot of ways that we can approach the word of God motivated by selfish gain and not motivated out of a desperation to get God. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with approaching God's Word, seeking wisdom. But we have to admit there is a difference with a heart that is motivated out of desperation for God and His ways and a heart that is motivated by self-promotion. The psalmist is the former, and he is basically telling God, listen, not only do I need you to make me walk the path of your commands, God, I need you to make me even want to walk this path. Not only do I need you to lead me on this path, but I need you to even incline my heart to your testimonies. I need you to even turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Now the question becomes this, why does he speak like this? Why does he take up this language of, I feel really incapable here, and God, I need you to lead me. I need you to make me even want. I need you to even turn my eyes from worthless things to things of infinite spiritual value. Why does he say these things? Why does he say, make me walk? Why does he say, make my heart? Why does he say, make my eyes? Why does he tell God, I need you to make this happen in me? And I believe the answer is this. The psalmist realizes he wants worthless things more than he wants God. His heart wants selfish gain more than it wants God's word. His heart delights to walk in its own path apart from God's leadership. And so he's sitting here like, I know the attitude and the motivations of my heart. And I just love things not of God. And I'm so prone to find myself in this place. And I'm so prone to love this place more than where I know I need to be. And so he's crying out with God, God, do something in me. See, God has made it possible for you and I to experience joy in this life. Unfortunately, as a result of sin entering this world, you and I tend to pursue joy in all of the wrong places. Things which are worthless are deemed to have value. We fix our gaze on material gain, we turn to wrong things, we delight in Facebook more than fellowship with God. We love money more than moments of time spent with God. I don't know how your mornings go, but it's like a battle every morning when I get up. Phone in hand almost immediately, and my heart jumps right onto Facebook. And it pulls me. It's like the siren seduction. This is better, time better spent time well spent, come to me, next thing you know, 30 minutes are gone by, 20 minutes are gone by, whatever it might be, next thing you know, you're running out the door, wondering I just, what, what just happened there? The desire of my heart in that moment was simply this, I bought into the siren seduction that Facebook would be better than time spent with God. I mean, that's one minute example of a thousand to one that are probably running through your head. See, the psalmist understands this tension, this battle of desires in the heart. He understands these things, and this is why he said, Listen, we need God to act. We need God to to turn our hearts to go and want to even want to desire his ways. So notice that instead of folding in on himself, because I believe the psalmist is feeling this tension. He's here living in this world, but notice what he does as opposed to what he does not do. What he doesn't do is just fold in on himself, start kicking the ground and going, well, man, you know, it just stinks. I'm so weak. God's far from me. I'm never going to hear from him again. He's so distant. Why Why doesn't he speak? Why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he draw near? I must be some sort of like freshman squad Christian and all these other people are, are doing well in life and they're doing good. They automatically have, have their life together. Just, they're just sort of tracing through life, automatically finding joy in life. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't spin out on himself because his heart is where it ought not to be notice what he does instead knowing that this is where his heart is he fights boldly by telling god god i need you to incline my heart the reality of his heart leads him to plead the power of god and his ability to change the heart And so when he wakes up in the morning and he pulls out his iPhone back in the Old Testament and starts going, man, like I want Facebook a little bit more now than God. What he's doing is he doesn't go, like, man, this sucks. I hate that I am this way. My heart, why don't you get your act together? No, he looks and he says, Man, like God, I'm so prone to want worthless things. God, give me the desire to want your path of life. Turn my eyes. I want stuff. I want the things of the world, but the things of the world are fleeting. God, turn my eyes to you. Make me to walk in the path of your word. Ultimately, what we're seeing here is the psalmist is fighting and doing battle with his soul, pleading God's power to give life. What we're doing is we're witnessing a picture of what it looks like to fight the fight of faith. This is what it looks like in these verses to fight for joy in God by pleading with God to turn the desires of our heart to the place of life in His ways. See, God has shown us the path of real, substantial, everlasting, joy-filled life in Him. And it's the path of His commands which lead us to God Himself. So God gives life by turning our hearts to His Word But notice in the last couple of verses, the last truth we see is this that God also gives life by confirming the promise of His word. God gives life by confirming the promise of His word. Look at what He says there in verse 38. The psalmist writes Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. There it is again. Give me life. God makes promises throughout the Bible. Some promises have been fulfilled and others are yet to be fulfilled. But every promise, every fulfilled promise, it bolsters the faith of those relying on God's complete ability to keep every promise that he's ever made. But when we lose sight of God's promise-keeping ways, doubt begins to creep in and occupy our hearts. We may begin to doubt that God's word is good. Or perhaps we will begin to fear the opinion of others. I think that's what we start to see here. So when he's saying, listen, confirm to your servant your promise that you might be feared. It's sort of like, man, like I'm beginning to doubt that like, you're able to keep your promises here. And so, God, I need you to confirm that you really are the God who doesn't lie. You really are the God who can keep the promises, every promise that you've ever made. And he says, turn away the, the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. So, so he's saying, like, listen, no, I know what the world is saying. Your rules aren't good, but I'm here saying your rules are good. But I know that like, when I stand on the foundation of God's word... And I stand on the good rules that he's given us. Reproach is going to come my way. Disgrace is going to come my way. People are going to mock me and make fun of me and heap shame on me for standing on the good and true promises of God. And he says, listen, there's times sort of like when I drift from that because I, re- I fear the reproach. I dread them making fun of me for standing on the word of God. And I know my heart's prone to drift in this way. And so he's standing there saying, God, help me not to lose sight of your promise. Help me not to begin to doubt your word. Help me not to fear the opinion of others. Confirm your promise. Turn away the reproach. In your righteousness, give me life. See, doubt and fear of man, these are seeds which bear the fruit of death. But the promises of God in his word bear the fruit of life. And when we read God's word and see how he has fulfilled his promises over and again, what we do is we lay the axe head of God's word against the roots of doubt and fear that strive to strangle our hearts. So when doubt and fear begin to creep in, how do you lay waste to that root that wants to strangle your heart? You take up the axe head of God's word. You see when God speaks, he keeps his promise. Then you go back into his word and you see that when God speaks, he keeps his promise. And when fear begins to come, what you do is you run into the word and you see that he makes promises and he keeps promises. And what you do is you keep laying that ax head of the promises of the word of God against the roots of doubt, against the roots of fear, against the roots of shame, against the roots of anxiety, against the roots of whatever might be struggling and striving to entangle your heart and pull you onto the path of death away from life and God and his ways. So when fear begins to seize our heart, what we can do is begin to cling to the fear-conquering promise of our God who says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When fear comes, you can wield Isaiah 41.10 like an axe head. Or when suffering and sorrow land in your lap for unexpected reasons and you're just standing there with your palms up and your eyes lifted to heaven going, what, what on earth is going on? Like I'm beginning to struggle that God is good. I thought, I thought his promises were good. I thought he was going to be good, good to me. What, what, what is going on in these situations? What we can do is we can lay hold of the assurance that God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We can wield Psalm 46 against our our heart that's prone to fear. Or when our joy turns weak, we can pray to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Colossians 1.11 or when our longing for God's word runs dry, we can genuinely ask God to incline our heart to his testimonies knowing this promise that God will hear and answer this prayer for we have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. We will John 1 John 5.14 and 15. Banking on the promises that God, when I pray according to your word, according to your will, according to your ways, I have the promise that you will hear and that you will answer, and so I can run to you. Pleading and clinging to the promises of God. See, in the end, the psalmist has come to to understand this truth, that to follow scripture Is actually to follow substance. In a world that thinks exactly the opposite, the psalmist prays that he would delight in the word rather than the world. The word is God's source of life because the word is the path that leads us to God. So my closing question for you, my closing question for me is this. When you struggle to desire God, When you struggle to desire his word, when you struggle to desire his ways, do you fight like this? Do you fight like this? Do you fight like the psalmist? Do you plead with God to do only what he can do? Do you pound on the text and ask God, God, I need you to turn my eyes. I need you to turn my heart. I need you to... To make me this morning, I'm up and I want everything but you. I want everything but your word. I want the promotion more than I want you. I want the raise more than I want you. I want my family more than I want you. I want my job more than I want you. I want the new car more than I want you. I want my situation to be fixed more than I want you. God, I need you to incline my heart so that my heart wants to obey your word. And see, what we need to understand is that it is okay for us to ask God to do this. It is okay for you to ask God to do this. I think most of us feel defeated or ashamed when we have these seasons of, of these dry seasons of wayward desire. Like, right, we think that we are supposed to so have our act together as Christians. Well, uh, not me, John. Uh, I never struggle with desire in this way. I struggle with desire in this way at times and seasons of my life. But like we don't go around admitting that to one another because that would mean we'd have to be honest with one another. We'd have to show that we're not perfect, that we actually need Jesus a little bit. I don't need Jesus. I'm never to struggle with desire. See, we think we're supposed to so have our act together that we would never struggle with our desires in this way. But then what happens is then we spin out wrongly believing that since we do at times struggle with our desires for God and His word, that this must be proof that something really is wrong with me. And so then what we do is we isolate ourselves over in a corner, believing a lie, and we begin to spin out, not just simply going confessing, listen, God already knows the desire of your heart is wavered, so just talk to him about it. Own your weakness, man. This is the thinking of the enemy that says, No, go and isolate because no one else out there is dealing with this, only with you because you're like your freshman squad. Everyone else is varsity, all star team. When everyone else is over here going, Man, I wish someone else would speak up because I feel like I'm freshman squad and everyone else there, out there is on varsity. But the beauty of God's grace is it brings and it creates a place called the church where we can just come and be open and honest, going, Man, I'm struggling to desire God today. I'm struggling to desire his ways. I'm struggling to find life in his path. And the the good news of grace is that it says, listen, own your weakness, glory, that Christ's grace is sufficient for you and that his power is made perfect in weakness. And so what you do is go, God, I'm weak today. Then you go to your knees in prayer, God, incline my heart. Then you get up and you're driving into work and you're wanting to flip the finger to somebody and you're screaming and yelling because people are cutting you off. You're like, God, I'm weak. Like I'm desiring to get my own over against this person, then your ways, and so then what you do is you don't go to your knee in your car, you keep your eyes open and two hands on the wheel, but then you begin to pray, God, I need you to, I need you to turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Cause right now my heart is beholden with making myself justified over against this person who's just cut me off, who just sold me short at work, who's talking bad about me in an email string that's running through the office. I feel the desire to justify myself, to take vengeance on them because they're the ones sullying my name in the office space. God, I want that more than I want your glory right now. God, I need you to turn my heart. See, in the end, my hope for us as a people here in this church, my hope is that God would make us a people who boldly yet humbly plead for God to give us life in his ways, even in When our hearts don't feel like it. That God would make us want his ways. Even when our hearts don't feel like it. And that we would be a people. Who would boldly lay claim. To the power of God. His complete ability. To even change the desires of our hearts. Give me life in your ways, O Lord. Teach me the way of your statutes. Give me understanding so that I may observe your word with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commands. Incline my heart to your testimonies turn my eyes from desiring worthless things confirm your promises that you may be feared turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good behold God do this in us behold make us be a people who long for your word God, we're not asking you to do this so that the name of Delta or our names would be made great, but we're asking you to do this so that the name of Christ and the power and the strength of him in us would be magnified and broadcasted to the world around us. God, come and do these things in the hearts of your people. Make us to want your ways. It's in the powerful name of Christ that I pray. Amen.